Do what thou wilt to be the whole of the law. Welcome to Hyros Gamos Radio, broadcasting out of the lower triangle, Tasmania, the descending tongue of grace. Adrift in the freezing waters of men between mainland Australia and Antarctica, howling like the hangman at a White House seance. Our guest is an occult historian and a leading authority on new thought, Mitch Horowitz. Brilliant. Well, um, I guess if we're all ready to go, we'll just we'll just kick off and um, yeah, terrific. Start chatting. Great. Thank you. Um, so yeah, tell us about your early life and your very first encounter with the esoteric. Well, my first encounter with the esoteric probably was through the little public library in the town that I grew up in, uh, in Belrose, in the borough of Queens, in New York City. I was fascinated from a very early age with myth and occult lore mystical philosophy, and I took out books on astrology and the supernatural all the time from my little local library. And one day I took home a book of Pennsylvania Dutch folklore, and it had within it some sort of a pentagram-like chart that you were supposed to use to tell your fortune. The method was you would close your eyes, you would hover a pin above this occult chart and you would bring down the pin on some kind of a little fortune or prophecy and I brought down the pin on a little prophecy that said a letter a letter and I was at the time maybe nine years old and I got very few letters and the next day a letter did arrive and it was a notice from the New York Public Library telling me that I had an overdue <laughs> book out and I was to return it and so <laughs> That probably stoked my interest in the occult at a very young and tender age. And I was just always curious from that age going forward where some of these concepts and ideas came from. I was as familiar with newspaper astrology as anybody, but I wanted to delve deeper and know where were these symbols from, where were these mystical ideas from, how did they reach me in my little town in the borough of Queens in New York City. And so I was always curious about peeling back the onion on some of these ideas. I guess that not only my curiosity, but the forms of occult study remain steady uh, through adulthood. Because I have always taken, I suppose, what you could call a scholarly interest in the occult, but also a very practical interest. And I've always had a great deal of sympathy for the popular occult literature. I like newspaper astrology when it's done well. I like tarot readings. I like Ouija boards. I like Bigfoot stories. I ardently believe in all these things. And so not only did my interest as a historian and as a seeker get solidified as a young, at a young age, but the sense of youthful wonder and the affection that I always had for popular methods has never left me, has never, never left me. I'm very suspicious of spiritual ideas that are considered serious and that are considered respectable. <laughs> I like to be down in the mosh pit. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, yeah, well, I guess a, a, a lot of people do, um, they start from an early age and I think you're, you're, story is not too dissimilar that you know something happened when when you're mm -hmm. a child yeah. you know whether it's you know a really big mi mystical experience or, or something smaller mm -hmm. but that's something that some reason keeps people going it's it's yes. kind of the crux of why people later on in life seem to be you know picking it up again yeah it's an emotional experience it's like any other uh, memories get formed by emotions and childhood is a time when our cement is particularly pliable and wet. Uh, and memories can get formed by emotions at any age. But that seems to me to be the key thing, that, that emotions shape memories. I think that's probably why people who are narcissistic usually have very little memory of other people around them or events that befell others around them because they're so completely self-involved that when something happens to their brother or sister or their neighbor, 
it doesn't form a memory in their mind because they have absolutely no sense of emotional impact mm. of what's happening in other people's lives. So be very, very careful. I warn you and your viewers, <laughs> you and your listeners, be very, very careful around people who seem to have poor memories for things that have happened to other people, people other than mm. themselves. If you say, remember I broke my arm in third grade and they look at you blankly, find a new friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Bit of practical advice. We'll take a little <laughs> off-ramp from the occult. <laughs> <laughs> practical advice, absolutely. Well, I'm terrible with ne remembering names, so uh, I hope I don't fall into that category. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I mean more the emotional details yeah, of, of yeah. that mark a life. Yeah. 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 And it makes sense. I think it really does make sense that that emotional collect connection will be what's driving you later on, whether you consciously yeah. realize it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have a, a book, Occult America, and it indicates a deep connection um, with the occult and American culture. Mm -hmm. uh, would having this kind of perspective help navigate your day-to-day -day life? Well, that's an interesting question and a very valid question because I think spiritual ideas are either actionable in day-to-day -day life or they're not very worthwhile. I, uh, my particular commitment, which I think you'll see signs of in occult America, but which is probably most explicitly pronounced in my current book, The Miracle Club, is in uh, positive mind metaphysics, the belief that thoughts are causative, the conviction that our thoughts impact what happens to us day-to-day. -day. I certainly do think that that impacts my daily life. I mean, I can trace by the hours of the clock things that I, I do in my daily life according to that belief system, meditation, affirmations, prayer, visualizations, other things. And I, I, I've certainly attempted to live my life by the conviction that thought is a, a real force, a real causative energy that what you think about with conviction over time does concretize, does actualize, and that's more than just a psychological verity. Interestingly enough, when I was writing Occult America, I came to feel that most contemporary expressions of the occult sooner or later come around to this contention that some people might call it will, some people might call it thought, but in any case, the ceremonial magician, the chaos magician, the uh, practitioner of mind metaphysics or positive thinking, even the attendee at a prosperity uh, ministry, all of these people are united by the idea that our minds are a kind of channel for extra-physical forces and laws. Even the even the secular chaos magician would say, well, if it works, that's evidence enough. I don't need to justify that there's some sort of extra physical presence going on. I only need to justify correlation. And are unified around a common spool of belief, which is that there are methods that go beyond the cognitive and motor that can actualize our wishes in the world. And that very popular idea is, in, in a real way, the kind of philosophical foundation that you find beneath most modern expressions of the occult, regardless of method, whether one says they're into Wicca or spell work or chaos or ceremony or new thought, whatever it is that the individual is into, <laughs> they're really dealing with some iteration of mind metaphysics. This is true, as I was alluding, among some people who were part of what might be considered more conservative, more traditional, evangelical or prosperity uh, ministries. And so I grew very interested in this idea as the kind of focal or point of convergence mm. of all the different occult systems and ceremonies. This idea has its most popular and most domesticated expression in what we would today call the secret or the law of attraction or the power of positive thinking, areas that I am in sympathy with and also have differences with. And 
so that led to my my next book, following from Occult America, which was called One Simple Idea, which was a history of the positive mind movement, because I came to feel that that movement has exercised such tremendous influence over the past 150 years uh, over various facets of modern life, not just religious life, in politics and economics. And I, I've, I've written broadly on occult topics, but I keep coming back to that one central idea of the causative powers of the mind. So my new book, The Miracle Club, is one in which I have really declared my own sympathies very explicitly for these ideas. I remember when Occult America was published, some people were asking me whether I considered myself a believer or not. And the answer is yes. I've always regarded myself as a believing historian. And I was surprised that 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 that, that didn't come through more clearly to certain people reading Occult America. Um, and so I was more explicit in my second book about my own beliefs. And in this book, uh, The Miracle Club, uh, I couldn't be more direct. You know, I'm very, very plain about saying that I'm both a chronicler and a seeker within these worlds. And I try to be very, very practical mm. and very focused on, on methods that people can experiment with. Because that's really what we're doing. We're experimenting. I, I, I really try to avoid the idea that I'm promulgating a specific theology or, or philosophy, although I do take very seriously the idea of mind causation, and I do think it's a path that an ethical, sensitive person can follow. But we are all creating a kind of co-testimony in a certain sense. We're all experimenting, and we're all on our knees kind of peeking through a keyhole trying to understand how does any of this stuff work or does it work? If anybody doesn't wake up at least once a month terrified that he or she has wasted his life by delving into this occult material, something's wrong. You know, I mean, one should never lose that, that willingness to be wrong, that willingness to, to just have completely wasted your life and misled everyone around you. Um, and, I, I don't wish that on anybody, including myself, but we have to see ourselves as experimenters. And the search gets shut down when we become th theologians, and we have to really watch out for that. Mm. Um, you, we, we're, we're talking a lot about um, this kind of power of, of positivity. Uh, would you say this similar kind of thing in regards to a negative mindset, negative mind, uh, thinking um, would perpetuate in the same manner? Without question, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Although I hasten to add that we we live under many laws and forces, and I, I, I constantly bring that point up in the Miracle Club and elsewhere because there's such a complexity of forces that we live under. That's one of the reasons why I shy away from terms like law of attraction because that always implies, at least in its current usage, that we all exist under one mental super law. And I... I really break with that. I feel very strongly that it is possible that intelligence or consciousness or awareness or however one wants to put it is the ultimate arbiter of reality, that in some way everything that underscores the reality we experience is mental in nature. That said, the framework in which we live is such that it's shot through with multiple law, laws and forces, including physical decline, including mortality, to which there's never been an exception. So it's insufficient to say that everything is bendable to the law of the subconscious mind or the law of attraction or one law when we know that all kinds of natural laws bend to different circumstances. Mm -hmm. The example I often use is the law of gravity. To be a law, it must be ever operative, and apparently it is, but you're going to experience it differently on Earth than you would on the moon or on the planet Jupiter. And if you're in space, you don't experience gravity at all because there's no mass. So the absence of mass means the absence of gravity's effects, but it doesn't mean gravity isn't ever operative. It's just mm -hmm. affected by other forces. I think it's the same with us. So I see the mind as one exquisitely important tool of causation that we're apt to forget about and we're apt to overlook and we're never without that as a resource. Mm. But we do face profound and sometimes crushing forces that 
are in addition to the mind. Uh, so sometimes you'll look at the life of a person and what that person experiences seems so congruous with his or her thoughts that it's uncanny. But of course, there's people living through natural disasters and all kinds of things, including whole nations, maybe suffering civil wars and things that are crushingly difficult. And I, I completely reject the contention that emerges from some people within the new thought world that somehow these people are all vibrating on the same frequency and that their thought patterns are bringing about these waves of seismic events that are causing pain and suffering. I completely break with that. I, mm -hmm. I, I feel there's absolutely no way to verify that. And I also feel that it's very dangerous for people to interpret the experiences of others, unless someone has actually been through a terrible natural disaster or been through a civil war or been through some violent upending of his or her life, it really just becomes throwing a stone at your neighbor to say, well, mm. too bad their thought patterns were vibrating along those frequencies, whatever any of that means. I mean, these are all just metaphors for what we go through. I have no idea whether <laughs> any of these things are empirically real so much as they're metaphors, you know, that we, we we use, and I don't think that I don't think it's possible to speak meaningfully on the spiritual path about experiences other than one's own. Yeah. And um, in that sense, I don't want to hear metaphysical theories about the fate and shape of nations, other than from people who have actually been there, you know, going yeah. through it. Yeah, of course, of course. Um... So, uh, yeah, so talk about this new thought movement. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with it, would you be able to talk about how this got started um, and uh, where, where are you at now? Sure. Um, <clears throat> the earliest roots of the new thought movement, which is really a term for the positive mind movement, go back to Europe in the late 1870s. Um, I'm sorry, the late 1700s, uh, where a figure named Franz Anton Mesmer was experimenting with his methods of placing people into trance states and claiming to be able to cure them. And I think Mesmer did affect uh, certain cures. But later on, and, and, and as was grasped, I think, by his greatest uh, students, those who followed Mesmer's theories came around to the conviction that what he was really doing was influencing and, and introducing suggestions to the subconscious mind. And of course, the term and the concept of the subconscious mind didn't really start to come into circulation in the Western world until the late, probably, 1800s, well into the well into the 1890s. One didn't really start to hear about concepts of an unconscious mind, a subconscious mind, and then we started to hear about it all in a hurry. But up until that time, it was a really radical and revolutionary concept, which, oh, what a cute kitty. Um, oh, I like your Thelema star, and you have your cat. Great. Um, this is El Ray. We were perfect. supposed to um, put the door, close the door, but we forgot. No, it's now all good. <laughs> running around everywhere. I can sort of, I've done network news shows where suddenly my cat will start grooming himself you know, in the background. There's nothing you can do. Oh, nothing <laughs> you can do about it. Very independent animals. Um, anyway, um, Mesmer's genius Mesmer's genius was that he had an early instinct for the existence of a subconscious mind. He called it animal magnetism. And he said, you know, that there was this invisible etheric fluid flowing through all creatures, cats, humans, and that if you could properly realign this fluid, it would cure physical maladies, mental diseases, and so on. And he was wrong, apparently, about the existence of an etheric invisible fluid some such thing might exist but we've never quite pinpointed something like that but it's less important what he was wrong about ultimately than what he was right about metaphorically he expressed what was happening in this language employing the idea of magnetism animal magnetism invisible fluid but what he had really tapped into was an early understanding of the uh, existence of the subconscious mind, another mind, an alternative mind, different from the one that we use just to mm. make lists and get to work in the morning. And Messmer's ideas uh, eventually traveled to America, where in the starting really in the 1830s, 1840s, 
many Americans were very aroused with the idea of experimenting with mesmeric trances, and that if you could experience apparent healings through such things, maybe you could experience other kinds of things. Maybe you could come into contact with people you wanted to meet. Maybe you could communicate telepathically. Maybe you could engage in astral travel or out-of-body travel. And all of this got mixed together in New England. Starting in the 1840s, 1850s, there was a great attitude of religious and philosophical experimentation in New England at that time. This was the the early age of the transcendentalists of Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Bronson Olcott. And people were aroused with the hidden agencies of the mind. They were aroused with the idea that the individual could be shot through with cosmic laws, hidden laws, hidden forces, not animal magnetism exactly, but maybe the laws of God. You know, uh, The great mystic Emanuel Swedenborg had talked about a divine influx flooding the individual or a divine inflow. And Ralph Waldo Emerson later picked up on this point. And different religious figures, some of whose names are remembered, some of them are forgotten, they all picked up on this point. And they formulated a kind of psycho-spiritual school, which became known as the New England Mental Healing school. And this branched off in many, many different directions. But the concept was that there was a very thin tissue of difference between a mental experience and a spiritual one. And that if you were interested in Swedenborg and hypnotism and transcendentalism and mental healing and prayer therapy and Christian science and all these different ideas that use the mind as a medium of cosmic influence, Pretty soon, you came around to the idea that thoughts were causative. And as, as progress marched on into the, into the late decades of the 19th century, early decades of the 20th century, to some people, this seemed very rational and very much in line with the march of progress. We were discovering x-rays and hid, hidden forces. Uh, germ theory was coming into vogue. Um, the idea that there was a hidden antecedent to diseases, to economics, to psychology, to sexuality, that really became the central concept of modern life, that everything has an unseen cause. There were, it was so thrilling to people that radio waves could travel through the air, electricity could travel uh, through wires, a telegraph signal could travel first through wires and later through the air. And the idea that the mind itself contained unseen agencies of influence was in vogue with everything that was being discovered, including the, the subconscious mind. So the movement really grew out of this atmosphere, and the most serviceable name for it became New Thought. It's People who wrote best-selling books based on these ideas did not often use the term new thought. You had books like Think and Grow Rich, The Science of Getting Rich, later The Power of Positive Thinking. So these other terms surpassed new thought in popularity, but that was the basic movement that it was coming out of. And I look back on this movement and I am struck that, like Mesmer, the movement had <clears throat> incredibly strong instincts for things that were going on in the natural world, for things that were that today are accepted as, as verities in terms of psychology. Everything that's happening today in studies in the placebo response, neuroplasticity, serious psychical research, was all grasped instinctively by New Thought practitioners. And although it's always controversial to say this, and there's always a bit of eye-rolling involved. The simple truth is that the past 80 years of experiments in quantum theory coalesce in terms of the observer effect, in terms of the permeability of matter based on the vantage point of the observer. These things coalesce with some of the early instincts of the New Thoughters. And it's amazing to read some of the early New Thought literature from the dawn of the 20th century, and you'll find, and I pinpoint this, for example, in my book, One Simple Idea, you'll find that there's even a similarity in lingo and vocabulary and lexicon between 
early, early experimenters in new thought and people today who are trying to seriously interpret or understand the placebo response, neuroplasticity, cognitive brain rewiring, and quantum theory. Uh, all of these diffuse fields uh, have a, a, a lingo and a language and a popular terminology that you will find antecedents of in new thought. They were, the, the pioneers were occupying a place of tremendous instinct for human nature. Mm. And I think their ideas had a great deal of validity mm. and also a great deal of dead ends and flaws and gaps. And so my wish today is to examine and celebrate and harness what was best in their ideas, try to fix, if it's possible, the worst parts of their ideas, the grave holes in their ideas, which I think we were referring to earlier with regard to the law of attraction, mm. and put us on a stronger footing to use and to experiment with these ideas today because it is an ongoing experiment and our generation is in front of such mysterious questions about the faculties of the mind. So how can we render the best of this material practical and kind of put ourselves in, on, on the best footing to perpetuate these experiments into the near future? Mm, yeah, I think this is also something that's really heavily hit mainstream these days too that it's um yeah like, sure uh, like you're talking about with the whole you know neuroplasticity but also in yeah, um yeah. you know noticing that like you know uh the you know local like you know youth center is like you know doing like you know uh, mindfulness meditation and like you know yes, putting yes. out lots of pamphlets and stuff to show people that you kind of do have this sense of control over your own own mind and your own thoughts and these mm -hmm. things are actually showing to be proving effective out there in in everyday life yes yes for sure all of this has gone very very mainstream and it's funny because when people talk about mindfulness meditation or even various business motivational retreats they're dealing with material that at one time was considered very occult or that mm. entered into our culture from the margins of society and today is very very mainstream and i celebrate that and we have to, in my view, or at least, I mean, we don't have to do anything, but I have to, because <laughs> I wish to, um, I, I want to push at the margins of that. You know, my, my wish is to, is to ask, you know, just, just what are the outer reaches of what we can reasonably understand about the mind's ability to create circumstance? Mm. Uh, that's, that's what I'm working on. Mm. It's, um, yeah, it's interesting. And there's a lot, a lot to, uh, to follow up on too, I think you're yeah, right about this. Yeah. We're in a bit of a bit of a soup, I guess, of <laughs> stewing away, Very much starting so. to discover things. Very much so. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so following on, I think. Um, so unlike uh, many New Age apologists, <laughs> you don't seem to be squeamish about acknowledging the material or that things like positive financial outcomes are worthwhile goals for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I do, you know, as you're alluding, I, I use the term new age and I, I apply it to myself. I, mm. I won't run from that term. Uh, I consider new age to be therapeutic spirituality. Mm. And I'm very aware of how critics use the term uh, to denote everything that's unrealistic and fuzzy headed and selfish and shallow in our psycho spiritual culture. I, I recognize that, but I think that, that, I, I don't mind being accused of, of being a practitioner of cafeteria religion. I'm deeply interested in what works in the same way that Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, was deeply interested in this question of whether there was a spiritual solution to addiction and he refused to take anything off the table. You know, he wanted to be very practical. Mm. I'm the same way. And we human beings, since literally the dawn of recorded time, have been borrowing and clipping and pasting from one another's religious traditions. I mean, it is as old as the dawn of time, quite literally. And, and it's traceable throughout history. Every holiday, every devotion, every practice has got at least... 10 different root systems attached to it, denoting different locales, geographies, impressions. People would you know, travel down the Silk Road to 
trade. They'd pick up religious ideas. They'd bring home local idols from one nation or one culture, introduce it into their own. Later in antiquity, the Roman Empire had a way of adopting the religious outlook of virtually every territory that it took over. And um, even when Christianity dawned in the Roman Empire for a, a long time, it was a it was a combination of early proto-Christianity and Jupiter worship. Our religious history has never traveled straight lines, and I have no interest in straight lines today in the 21st century. So I don't view New Age or cafeteria religion or anything like that as negative terms. I know they're used negatively, but I refuse to run from them. And, and I really do care very deeply about people finding practical answers within religion, whether that's in AA or whether that's in ceremonial magic or whether that's in New Thought. I really, really deeply, deeply want people to get places with these practices and then come back and tell us what they found, where they've gotten. The same thing may not work for everybody, but um, I, I came to realize many years ago that the refusal to run from these labels was very relaxing. It helped me let my guard down in a way that was very productive and, and very helpful. So, you know, today I'll freely use terms like occult or ESP or new age or self-help that serious people are often encouraged one way or the other to run away from. Mm. And it doesn't do any good running away anyway, because if you call yourself a medium and then think, oh no, it'll sound better if I say channeler mm. and then no, it'll sound better if I say intuitive. We all know what you mean for God's sake, you know? <laughs> and, and, and I think it, it almost, it almost represents a kind of insecurity. Mm. So I want people to not feel that they have to jettison a term because the term has been co-opted by critics. Uh, I mean, people can use whatever term they feel mm. speaks to them in a, in, in, a, in, a, in a heartfelt way, but I don't want to feel that we can no longer respectively use the term occult or ESP or what have you, because in a certain sense, those were never respectable terms. And I'm not going to attract respectability if I say esoteric instead of occult. And, and furthermore, as the great teacher Jiddu Krishnamurti observed, perhaps the greatest barrier to creativity and productivity in one's life is the seeking of respectability that itself can close down so many inquiries and possibilities. So I am proud to consider myself a disreputable uh, new ager. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them on their toes, hey? <laughs> um, can you talk about um, how a figure like uh, Napoleon Hill has influenced you? And uh, sorry, I'm just going to reread that one again because. Go right ahead. <laughs> I think we might actually skip down through and cover this topic next. But I'd be happy to say something about yeah. Napoleon Hill. You want to talk Hill. about Napoleon Hill? Yeah. I'd be, I'd be happy to. <laughs> Napoleon Hill is, yeah. is famous for having written a book in 1937 called uh, Think and Grow Rich. Mm -hmm. And you know, he can be a polarizing figure to some people because in the minds of some, a friend of mine was making this point on a panel recently. He was saying there's a big problem with the title Think and Grow Rich. It takes all of these mystical ideas and it it squeezes them through a very narrow funnel into material gain. And I disagreed with my friend because I don't think we can afford to adopt an attitude of squeamishness about practical needs. I I was in a celebratory mood this past Fourth of July, not because of anything that's going on in America. Everything here is you know terrible at the moment, but. But I, was, um, I had completed a short mini-documentary on tarot, and it came out very well, and I was very happy with it. So I announced to followers over social media that uh, over Fourth of July weekend, I would give people free tarot readings, these little three-card readings that I tend to do somewhat quickly. And the response was overwhelming. And I found that almost every question that was put to me by people from every background and every walk of life really came down to three categories – money or career, mm. uh, romance, relationship, and health. And those were largely people's concerns, money, romance, health. And I have to be perfectly frank, 
in many regards, those are my concerns as well. You know, people talk about inner development and so on. And I mean, if that's sincere, then then I'm the first one to to come up to you and, and shake your hand. And of, of course, of course, inner development matters. Of course, but I'm interested in what matters at three o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday. I really want people to be blunt and honest and explicit and direct about what they're concerned about. Because if you're adopting this kind of pretense of having other greater, deeper concerns that supersede those very ordinary sounding concerns, you better mean it. You better mean it. Because otherwise, you're, you're, you're interjecting fakery into your own spiritual and philosophical search. It doesn't help you as the individual. It doesn't help your neighbor. It doesn't help people around you. It, it, you're, you're wearing a mask. And that's a very dangerous thing to give one's life over to. So I, I refuse any squeamishness about using all forces at one's disposal, physical and non-physical, to get done in life that which one feels drawn to. So in that sense, you know, I have no problem with Think and Grow Rich. And I wrote critically of Napoleon Hill in my book, One Simple Idea, because there were things he said and did that I personally objected to. And I thought differently of that when the paperback edition to the book came out. And I put an additional note in the paperback edition. And I said, look, you know, I, I have been critical of him. And there are things, in fact, he said and did as a person to which I object. But since the year 2013, I've made a very careful, very studied reading of Think and Grow Rich. I read it several times a year, and I think it's actually filled with serviceable ideas and very, very good ideas. And I think Napoleon Hill, whether or not I like every aspect or facet of his life or career as a, as a person, he was brilliant at harnessing and collecting together a catalog of tremendously useful, serviceable, psychological and spiritual ideas. He had a brilliant, brilliant grasp of human nature, and I encourage people to study the book. He wrote what I think is one of the finest, finest chapters on what we today would call sex magic or the uses of sex energy at such a time before those ideas had really hit vogue. They were still very much underground ideas, and certainly Aleister Crowley and, and others who pioneered the modern ceremonial tradition, were involved with some of those ideas, but Napoleon Hill had a gift for just bringing them right down to your kitchen table, so to speak. Mm. And um, he, he grasped so much, and there's so much in that book that's useful. No one should be put off or embarrassed by the book's title. We, again, as Krishnamurti observed, this, this wish for respectability can be so constricting and so limiting. And I'm not suggesting that that's the only reason why somebody can be turned off by that title, but don't let a, a, a title that you might think is gauche get in the way of your experiment. Because the book actually can be used to enact really any project in which you're interested. He was a great communicator, Napoleon Hill, and he had a way of meeting people exactly where they lived. So he came up with one of the most alluring titles in modern history, Think and Grow Rich, and almost everyone has heard of the book. But the book really can be used, whether you're an artist or a student or a teacher or a soldier or whatever it is you do in life, any aim that you wish to actualize or concretize can be progressively moved towards through that book. It's not just uh, money. And I... I I have a deep dedication to that book. I think there's greatness in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think also the majority of us, uh, things like finance and, you know, love and health are probably on the top of a lot of people's lists when it comes. It's always there. <laughs> Say what you will. It's always there. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, you've um, so you've written. I warrant that the left-hand path has a more powerful and seriously felt set of ethics than most religions. Can you yes. uh, talk about this? 
Yes, yes. Thank you for asking that. I appreciate that question very much. Uh, the left-hand path, for those who are unfamiliar with the term, is sometimes associated with what is called Satanism. It is really a spiritual path, although not always spiritual. I mean, there are some people who walk the left-hand path who reject the notion of the spiritual or the theistic. I must be clear about that. But we'll say it's an ethical or spiritual path that emphasizes the idea of uh, my will be done versus thy will be done. We think of the traditional Judeo-Christian ideal as thy will be done, deferring to God, deferring to the what, what is conceived of as the higher. The left-hand path is a path of my will be done. It's a path of self-assertion. It's a path of wanting to see through one's own projects in the world as the pinnacle of achievement, of self-development. You don't have to call yourself a Satanist to be on the left-hand path. Uh, I think it probably encompasses, encompasses many different philosophies, Thelema, ceremonial magic, sometimes chaos magic, um, some, some forms and variants of Wicca or witchcraft, and some forms and variants of Satanism. Mm. Uh, Satanism is such a difficult term to use because it's almost instantly understood, and people have all these maleficent and negative associations with it. But again, it's, it's another of these terms from which I refuse to run. I have a whole different conception of Satanism than the way it's traditionally used. I see it as a esoteric thread that has run through our ethical and religious traditions that represents the rebel, the usurper, the emancipator, the romantic, the anti-hero. And, and I do think that there's an actual force there. I think there's a non-physical, metaphysical presence and force that you can refer to metaphorically as Satan or as something else. But it's another of those terms that I refuse to cede to those who would define it in what I think is the most conformist way. Mm. There's something else there. And so <clears throat> my contention is, and you were quoting from an article called Satan's Honor Roll that I have posted at the website medium.com where I'm a contributor. My contention is that when you adopt a path of a kind of extremist self-responsibility or a path that asserts selfhood as the highest form of development, it, it, it also becomes incumbent upon you to carry with you a code through life. Otherwise, you may crash and burn very, very quickly, or you may descend into becoming a figure of violence or a kind of thoughtless hedonism or something of that sort. And my experience has been that people who walk the left-hand path work very hard to adopt an ethical code and to govern themselves, themselves according to a certain code of honor. And my contention in this article that I wrote, Satan's Honor Roll, which has gotten a lot of attention for an article that's very underground, my contention is that having searched through sources of what I would call a kind of creative Satanism throughout history, biblical sources, underground sources, uh, works that grew out of the Romantic literary tradition, more contemporary works written by people like Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan, or Michael Aquino, the very brilliant founder of the Temple of Set, and other sources as well, works by William Blake, who was profoundly large and flexible on these principles in ways that haven't been fully appreciated. If you look at ways in which the mystical and the literary mind in its greatest expressions has sought to come to terms with the figure of Satan in the modern world. John Milton would be included in this too, of course. You can trace out a kind of set of ethics and you don't just find within, I think, the greatest works and the greatest voices who are trying to come to grips with the satanic tradition, you don't just find an expression of malevolence and 
evil doing and the basest form of destruction. Quite the opposite, quite the opposite. You find, I contend, even within an esoteric thread in scripture itself, even within an esoteric thread of scripture itself, you find a code of honor, you find a code of ethics, you find a code of governance. And you have to work harder to find that code and live harder to abide by that code than something that's just simply handed down to you as catechism. Mm -hmm. Does everybody on the left-hand path succeed in such a way? Uh, Apparently not. But the people that I've met and interacted with on that path have always been, for me, some of the most responsible, focused, ethical people I've known because of the fact that nothing is handed down to them and that their governance is Mm -hmm. self-governance, along with living under all the various laws, some of which are very good, (laughs) that have been set up for us. You know, I mean, none of us are out there by ourselves, and to think otherwise would be a fantasy. Mm -hmm. But but in terms of their inner life and their relationships, there's a a good deal of self-governance, and I admire that. And so... They have to work hard to arrive at and to maintain, if they're successful at it, this code of ethics. Mm. And so I tried to tease that out in that article, Satan's Honor Roll. That's mm. what I was making reference to. Mm. I, um, that, that directly uh, actually leads on uh, talking about Anton LaVey. Um, yeah. Being kind of placed on a sort of an American spiritual tradition. Can you, can you discuss mm-hmm. a bit more specifically about the LaVey section of uh, Satanism? Sure. You know, I, I was talking about this in an interview that I sat for for a documentary that's being made about Anton mm. a few weeks ago. And I certainly don't mind repeating and sharing some of what I said then. Perhaps my only regret as I look back on Occult America, which is coming up on its 10th anniversary mm-hmm. next year, is that I didn't include Anton in the book because uh, 10, 12 years ago, I had too small a view of Anton. I perceived Anton as a kind of a, a showman, an artist, a troublemaker, mm-hmm. all of which he was, mm-hmm. but not somebody who really fit in to the occult family tree in American (laughs) history. I saw him as an outlier, an oddball, and all of that's true, again. But I didn't fully realize Anton's greatness as a magician and as an occult thinker. And that awareness dawned on me only recently, that I stopped looking at him as just a provocateur and an artist and a a troublemaker and a kind of thorn in the side of conformity and started seeing in large part, thanks to the influence of my friend, Carl Abrahamson, who wrote a wonderful book called a culture where he has an invaluable chapter on Anton. And I was very influenced by this chapter. I started seeing Anton as a person with a real philosophy and occult intellect and outlook. And as a great magician, I thought of Anton earlier as maybe Ayn Rand with pentagrams. And he was more than that. You know, he was more than that. Ayn Rand was so ardently materialistic. And one couldn't quite define Anton that way. And Aleister Crowley, who was so invested in ceremony and rite and ritual, um, Anton tended he, he was invested in those things too, but he tended toward a simpler, I think, more stripped down approach than some of what you find in the Crowley literature. And Anton also had aspects of, of Nietzsche in him. He, he was a great, great popularizer of certain Nietzschean ideas. And as I was alluding earlier, religions and mystical philosophies – are always borrowing from one another. You know, we're all in the sausage factory saying, you know, let's throw this in and let's throw that in and let's try this. So if you could say, you know, Anton was kind of a popularizer of objectivism, popularizer of Nietzschean ethics, popularizer of ceremonial magic, he was all those things, but he was something more as well. You know, he was something more as well. He had this grasp that 
the satanic was a force uh, historically and from a religious and literary perspective, a force of rebellion, emancipation, usurpation, and that you could locate this esoteric thread within Western history and, and history in other parts of the world. And that this could speak to something that modern people had an instinct for, but no language for it. He put that together in his book, The Satanic Bible, and his his founding of the Church of Satan in 1966, which never to be one for you know small aims. He declared the year zero, and that we were setting the Western clock backwards. And um, and I think that that Anton he, he he was he was just a greater thinker and occult impresario than I understood 12 years ago. And I'm so deeply grateful to Carl and other people who have influenced me for opening me up to that. So I expect someday, maybe not too far off in the future, maybe I'll publish an anniversary edition or something of Occult America at some point. I'd like to include an afterword mm. that pays tribute to Anton. Mm, mm. I think he was, he's highly, highly influential and highly influential in in um, things like, you know, like more youth-like music scenes and things like that, even today. That's I agree. Hugely. Popular. In fact, I'm even, I'm wearing his... Uh, his pentagram, a pentagram he designed as a fairly yeah. recent tattoo. In <laughs> tribute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah, uh, still with the, um, the Satanism, um, in many ways, Thelema is tarred with this same, same brush, this kind of... Yes. Um, and what the question we wanted to ask you was... Um, from your uh, research into American cult history, uh, occult history, um, as uh, we would like to know what do you understand why Thelema thrived in the United States for decades, mm. where elsewhere it was almost wiped out? That's a fascinating question. What a wonderful question. There has always been a love in the United States, and this is true elsewhere as well, for the anti-hero, for the outlaw seeker. Uh, the Beats gained great popularity in the United States for that purpose. And I think for many Americans, both seekers and artistic and literary figures, uh, uh, Crowley fit that ideal, mm -hmm. fit that ideal of the anti-hero. And there was something very beloved about the anti-hero in America, always. And there was always a great deal of sympathy, too, I think, for people who attempted to come up with mystical systems that could result in almost a kind of spiritual technology. I think that's why I figure like Jack Parsons, for example, the rocket scientist, was so interested in Crowley because he had the mind of a laboratory technician, uh, Jack Parsons did. And, and also somebody who had, you know, frankly, a, a, a will to power, a wish to want to exert his, his sense of what could be on the world, or at least on the world that immediately surrounded him. And he, along with other Americans, was turned on by the prospect that maybe Crowley's system and maybe Thelema could function as a kind of spiritual technology where you could do a rite or a ritual and get a concrete outcome, maybe even a guaranteed outcome, maybe even an outcome that was repeatable. And so for Jack, that was a real turn on because he's thinking he, you know, as a scientist, but he's also a scientist who wants to do more than just codify principles. He wants to exert his will onto the world. And I think for a lot of Americans, Crowley presented that that kind of possibility. Um, I will go back and I'll reread the Book of the Law with great frequency. And it's difficult, I think, for any thoughtful person not to get swept up in the sense of portent and possibility mm. that that book suggests to the individual. It differs from the work of Anton LaVey in that it's more esoteric. And Anton tended to kind of put things out there in very plain and concrete principles. And he honored the uses of 
or the adaptation, we'll say, <laughs> not always the accurate adaptation, but the adaptation of, of ancient ideas or, or, or Renaissance age ideas as a way of heightening the dramatic possibilities of ceremony and the exertion of will. Um, but he was more straightforward than 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 Crowley was, and uh, Crowley also I think left people with such a patchwork of possibilities and detective work to be done that there were uh, again I think this is probably universal to human nature but certainly here in America that element of mystery and the possibility that one was engaged in detective work and a treasure map was irresistible, um, and of course Crowley also exerted an effect on the, the popular culture, which was felt by the Beatles and Ozzy Osbourne and Led Zeppelin, of course, all European artists, but <laughs> they had such an impact on the American psyche. And um, I think Crowley for Americans introduced this idea that still persists that this ancient magical lexicon could not only be revived by modern people, but could be this very practical kind of do-it-yourself technology, albeit a complex one, but one that held the promise of definite concrete results, which Americans really like, you know. <laughs> we like our philosophy to have a cash value, as, as William James put it. And he used that specific word, term, not in a negative way, you know. <laughs> Americans like a cash value behind their mysticism. And so Crowley, uh, Crowley provided that. Mm -hmm. I am... Um I, I cannot say that I know anything about American culture at all, really, but I was wondering whether there is a sense of the uh, a new world thing. I mean, the U.S. Yes. has kind of had this Good foundation point. of it's, an, it's, you know, it's going to be the new world that maybe that mentality yeah. sort of carried through perhaps. I think definitely. And amazingly enough, that, that new world sensibility, surprisingly enough, still exists in America because there are parts of the country – that are less populous, it's a large country. There's parts of the country that are less populous that suddenly grow more populous. And this is still going on. There's still these large migration flows. And so there's a freshness about that that one feels sometimes. Mm. You know, I was out recently in Boulder, Colorado, and there's a lot of people moving out there. And for some of the old timers, it's frustrating because it means that the landscape is changing. But for the newcomers, it's very exciting. Mm -hmm. And there's a mixture of different ethnic groups and all kinds of things happening. And you feel an excitement. And that comes from migration flows. And so one still feels that, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. you know. Um, so finally, uh, well, uh, you've got a new book that has just come out, if I'm correct, called The Miracle Club. Yes. Miracle uh, Club. Yep. And uh, would you be able to briefly tell us about that before we have to wrap it up? Sure. You know, I mean, it's really everything we've been discussing, uh, from a, but from a practical perspective, it's it's my wish to explore methods and techniques in mind metaphysics, share them with people, have people experiment with them, see if they work. You know? <laughs> Let's form a record of testimony. And the name The Miracle Club actually comes from uh, a little occult salon that was formed here in New York City, where I live, where I'm speaking from, in the year 1875. There was a group of occult seekers who got together on the west side of Manhattan, and they wanted to experiment with all the things we've been discussing, the powers of the mind, channeling, mediumship, midnight raps on the table, talking to the dead, all kinds of things, and aspects of ceremonial magic as they were available to the Westerner at that time. And they only stayed together a very short time, but the nucleus of that group formed the much larger and more influential group, the Theosophical Society, which became this great tree out of which everything grew throughout the world. And there was this whole revolution in alternative spirituality, esoteric spirituality, that grew from the Theosophical Society. But its earliest iteration was this little group meeting in a cramped apartment on the west side of Manhattan that called itself the Miracle Club. And I wanted to not only pay homage to them as my heroes, but to revive the sense of informality and experimentation that uh, I think possessed that group. And so everyone is automatically a member of the Miracle Club. There's, there's, no, <laughs> there's no secret handshake or decoder ring, although if you email me, I will send you just for fun a membership card. <laughs> 
think we we're not above having a little fun. And uh, but but truly, everybody who wants to experiment is 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 in the group. And their motto was one word: try, try with an exclamation point. And I love that. So I, uh, my wish is to pay homage to them and to revive the spirit of experimentation that they had. Fantastic. Oh, well, yeah. Hopefully um, that there's one for all the listeners out there to add to your book list. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Also, absolute, really appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure talking thank to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. The questions were so well-rounded <laughs> and I really appreciate it. There, thanks. We hope you've enjoyed the show. None of the opinions expressed by hosts or guests reflect the policies of OTO Australia, its members or offices. This is your host, Sora Mer. Love is the law, love underwear.